I'm gonna pray. Lord, I believe and then I don't believe and then I believe again and then I don't believe and I feel tormented sometimes by that. But I pray that even this morning I could trust, I could trust the good news. And I do pray that for me, deep in my soul, and for my friends here, that we would experience being empowered by your spirit to know something that scares us and overwhelms us, but will give us life. That's what I long for today. Amen. Hey, I need a little help. I need a couple people who could help me um, kind of tell the gospel. Now, that's a little intimidating. Here's all you'll have to do is you have to be somewhat comfortable with throwing a ball and kind of catching. You don't even have to be great at catching. Um, I've got the, the and this makes sense. Well, it may not make sense. I'm going to hope it makes sense here in a few minutes. But um, so I just need three volunteers. And, and, and honestly, if you're not really good at catching, I've got one of these too. So, so if you're pretty good at catching and then not so good at catching, I just need three of you to come on up. All right, come on up. All right. All right, come on, you can come, yeah, come on. Oh, he's really excited, this is gonna be great. All right, okay, stand right down here. We're all gonna play, you, which one do you want? No, you can take that one, all right. Do you want the big one? You don't need the big one, all right. You don't need any, Would you, I want you to use that. That'll help me as I'm telling my story. So that's gonna be, put that on the hand that you usually use for a glove. All right, Ted, no offense, but that's what we think of you, all right. All right, all right, so, there we go. And I, oh, I'm gonna get one too. Everybody got a couple balls? All right, here we go. So let's play. And so here, we're just, let's just practice one time. Don't, we're not trying to throw it hard. Just kind of throw it underhand. Okay, throw me the ball underhanded. And then it will stick on our little paddle things here. Well, well, maybe it won't. All right, here we go. Let me throw it to you, Ted. All right, there we go. Oh, there we go. That's how it's supposed to work. All right, well, okay. Let's see if yours works. All right, there we go. Nice. Oh, you're going to have to take the ball off of there. That won't work. We can't have more than one gospel going at a time. Crap. All right. All right. That was a false gospel. All right. Here we go. All right. Here we go. Nice. There's a good catch. There we go. Okay. It's catching. All right. Here, here's how the story goes. You guys, keep, you guys keep playing. You can throw it to me every once in a while. Is I think, for my purposes, that that ball represents love. Well, yeah, love in general, but sort of specifically even God's love. And so... If you want to get loved, what you need to do is to get somebody to what? Throw you the ball, throw me the ball. So I need the ball. Mine does not stick, however. Okay, all right, that's good enough, that's enough. All right, thank you guys, thank you. Give them a hand, all my little, you can put it here, all right. Thank you, all my little evangelists there. All right, so here's what I have believed all my life. And I've intuited, and I'm, I'm guessing, may not be true for all of you, but for many of you, I, I have had this experience that I don't feel loved. I remember as a child, my parents loved me, but I, I can't say I always felt loved. I always felt a little out of place. 
I felt a little bit weird at school, junior high, that feeling that there's something a little wrong with me. And now as an adult looking back, I think a big part of that was this sense, I don't feel loved. And if I wanna be loved, I need to get people to throw the ball to me. And then as an adult, I, I, I noticed people were throwing the ball to me. My own story with, with God and with the gospel is I believe with all my heart that God loves you. But I didn't feel very loved by God. And I treated God as in some ways we should in this sense, like a person. I wanted him to love, so I thought it was just I needed to get more of his attention. And I noticed that God was throwing the ball. But the problem was the ball for me never sticks. You see, my paddle, unlike those, is broken. My paddle doesn't have that, that part that makes it stick. It, it's smooth. And it dawned on me. The problem is not primarily that nobody, no love is coming towards me. The problem is that part of me that makes love stick is broken. And in fact, what I discovered was the more I tried to get the ball thrown to me, in fact, it made it all the more apparent and the feeling deeper that I wasn't loved. I don't think, well, I, I should, let me back up. I, I know I'm weird, but I don't think in this case I'm all that weird. I think that's kind of the human story. I think this is, in some ways, another story of the gospel. There is a part of scripture that we're gonna look at today that I think, for me, has been a big part of this story of repairing that part of me that makes love stick. I'm gonna read it for you. It's found in Ephesians chapter three. It's a prayer that Paul writes to his friends in Ephesus. We're gonna interact with this story. I'm gonna tell you some of my own interactions with it. And then we're gonna practice a little bit and see what happens. Ephesians 3, beginning in verse 14. When I think of this, I fall to my knees and I pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. And I pray that from his glorious and unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. And then Christ will make his home in your hearts into, in, into, in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. And may you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. 
and then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. I wanna make a, just a couple comments about this passage. One, as I read this and it says that I pray that from God's glorious unlimited resources he will empower you, that all of who God is, it's gonna take all of God to fix this part of us. That this is a big issue. And that, that, that he, is, he is invoking, in a sense, the entirety of God for us as people to begin to grasp and experience that we are loved. Now, I want to make a little, a little distinction real quick. I said it earlier, and I want to reinforce it. I'm, I'm not talking about your belief that God loves someone else. My hunch is that's not that hard for you. That's what's the weird part. Like, I fully believe the gospel. I fully believe that God entirely loves you. I'm the one who feels a little disqualified. And then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Roots will grow down. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should. And I like that little line, as all God's people should. Because you see, again, I don't think this is just a, a, my problem. I think this is sort of a universal Christian problem. All people should. How wide, how long, how high, how deep his love is. If God is without beginning, and if God is without end, his love for me has no beginning, and his love for me has no end. Again, this is an enormous topic. It's the gospel. So what is, what's preventing that from coming? Well, now we come to this little conversation about faith. And I will own that I'm... I'm I'm kind of rethinking that in my own life. What is faith? And what happens with faith? I, I, I'm open to changing this, because I, like I said, I'm just kind of working some of this out, but, but I think I've noticed a fatal flaw in my thinking about faith, and that was that I thought that faith was primarily a, a force that I enacted. That, that faith was, was some kind of, I don't know, energy that I mustered within me, and then I somehow did something with that. And I think I've been totally wrong. I think it's almost the opposite of that. And the, and the way I picture it is, is it's currently, it's, it's like a swinging door, like a door, like one of these doors. But it only opens one way, it only opens in this direction. And I believe that, that, that at the fall or, or, or somewhere along my experiences with my family and with my mom and dad and in junior high and all my all of that has, has somehow forced me to, to put my shoulder against that door. That it is my, my energy is actually expelled towards keeping the love of God on the other side out of my life. You'll, you'll notice in scripture, wherever God shows up, people are afraid. 
And it doesn't, it's not just when angels and light, it's like in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, several times, Jesus should heal somebody or he casts out a demon. And the next phrase is, and the crowd was afraid. Because the, 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 the extravagant love of God is an undoing. And all of my weight is against the door. And in fact, I believe it's because I'm scared. Because see, I'm, I'm scared of what, what would happen. I, I would lose my, I would lose control. I, I, would, I would lose my ability to be kind of in charge. I, I, I lean against the door and I like, in a weird sense, even though it, it kills me, I, I like my food addiction and my alcohol and porn and whatever else you might have. It helps me hold that door closed because I can control that. I think faith, or at least one, I, one way to maybe begin to think about it, is when I'm so tired of holding the door closed. And the Bible uses lots of words. I receive, or I believe, or I say yes, or I surrender, or I give up. to the truth of God's love wanting to come inside of me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And Jesus is saying, Carl, quit leaning against the door. My energy is not spent in believing, but in disbelieving. A couple of weeks ago, when I was here, I, I, I gave you a glimpse of a story that I've, I've shared a few times, and so some of this might be a little redundant, but I wanted to sort of flesh out a, a, a more of the story than what I shared, because I was limited by time a couple of weeks ago. That was the story about my dad. My dad was, uh, my dad was uh, an American spy. He worked for army intelligence and he was stationed in Stockholm, Sweden. And that's where he met my mother. And my mother was a Swedish citizen had never been to America. But anyhow, they fell in love and it wasn't illegal or anything for somebody in his division. But when you married somebody who was not an American citizen and when you married period, you were out of the covert operations kind of field. And so within just a few months, my dad was reassigned back to the States, and actually he was just moved over to the Army National Guard, but they had gotten married, they'd fallen in love. And I don't know all the details, I don't know if he hadn't thought through that or if this was his ticket out, but long and short, my dad and mom married, and then they, my mom, a 20-something-year-old young Swede, landed in Birmingham, Alabama in 1958. And that marriage didn't make it. But they had now two children, and my mom couldn't go back to Sweden. And so she raised us as a single mom there in Alabama. So my, all my memories are about wanting to be connected to my dad. 
My mom remarried when I was six. Um, but she doesn't pick men well. And, and, and I, I just know that longing. I always wanted my dad. When I was 11, we moved to Colorado and I spent my summers in Alabama. I do not have any memory, and I think this is true, I never once did anything that I know of to make my dad mad. I never, I never said anything to him. I never, conf- I never shared my feelings with him about how hard it was, how much I wanted him. I never once shared that how I invited him to my high school graduation, but he wasn't there. How I invited him to my wedding, but he didn't come. I, I invited him and told him about the birth of my daughter, but he didn't come. And the, the birth of my son, and he didn't come. And when I graduated from seminary, he didn't come. And how I wanted him so deeply, but I never told him. I was too afraid because I just wanted him to, to like me. I remember when my daughter, this is now almost 13 years ago, fell in love and was going to get married. And she uh, she'd planned this beautiful outdoor wedding up in the mountains of Colorado. And I invited my dad. We, we would talk on the phone. And he said, hey, son, I'm going to try to be there. I wouldn't want to miss that. I remember. I remember I, I walked my daughter down the aisle. And then my father-in-law prayed a blessing. And, and then he and I switched. And then I began to officiate that wedding. And I remember like yesterday. As I am sharing this, this, as I'm doing sort of the sermon, I'm doing the wedding, I can remember looking out over the audience, a couple hundred people. And I remember as I'm speaking, I'm thinking, damn you, damn you. This will never happen again. I am never again going to be disappointed by you because he wasn't there. And I made this little vow. And I'll be honest, it felt good. Like it felt like, it felt so smart. I, I felt like so stupid. Like I, I kept getting set up and now I'm done with that. I shared that with my spiritual director. How, how I had this revelation and how I was free. She was not on board with this. Um, and I honestly was a little surprised like, but I could tell she's a little bit, you know, she's trying to be spiritual directory. Um, so she's trying to be nice, you know, but kind of going, hmm, I'm wondering. Is that... Basically, she's going, I'm not so sure that was God. I, I shared it with my best friend and same response. Hmm, not so sure that's such a great idea. Making vows to close our heart. It... It happened that at the end of that summer, just a couple months after my daughter's wedding, I was going to be, I was part of a a team that traveled around the country speaking, and I was speaking at the Coliseum in Atlanta. And my dad had never seen me really preach. um, And we were talking on the phone, and my dad lived in Alabama, and I said, hey, I'm going to be there in Atlanta. And I invited him to come. And... uh, he said, yeah, I'd, I'd really like to be there. I was sharing with my spiritual director, my friend, and, and they both suggested that maybe this, 
would be an opportunity to share with my dad the feelings that I had experienced. So I remember being at the conference and it was, it was, it was the, that big auditorium and, and there's, there's like balconies and lights and, and I, but my dad was a big man, 6'3", 400 pounds and I can remember his silhouette. I, mean, I, I, I knew it was him, I could see him. The next day, uh, that night he drove me back and the, the plan was I would spend the night at his home and then the next day we would spend the whole day together and we were driving down the road, we had gotten in the car, we were gonna have this little adventure together, we would only in the car about 10 minutes, I was driving and I looked at him and said, Dad, I've gotta tell you something and it's really hard. I, wanna, I gotta pause for just a second. I wanna go back, <laughs> I wanna go back to the wedding. Um, you see what's interesting? As I, was, as I was making my vow, I was also preaching a little sermon to my new son-in-law and my daughter, and it was this passage that I was preaching. And mostly what I wanted them to grasp was that God's love for us is extravagant. That was the words I kept using. My, um, my daughter has always loved dogs. Not little dogs, big dogs. And um, at that time, my, my wife and I were trying to figure out what we could do for some extra income or for some retirement. I didn't have any. And so I had, I had bought a, a sort of a fix and flip little Victorian home very near here in the Highlands. And I was going to rent that out or sell it. And, um, and so I'm working on it. And Chris and Carla are going to be getting married. And they, um, they came to me one day and they said, hey, hey, Dad, this is a really nice house. Like, I mean, I was, doing, I'm, I was working. I, I completely redid everything. Knew everything. I had just finished laying brand new hardwood floors. And Carla goes, hey, Daddy, do you think it'd be possible for Chris and I to rent this from you. Oh, I don't want to do that. But I thought, uh, okay. The eviction could be a little dicey, but I guess, <laughs> I guess I'll try. And so we made a, you know, we came up with a, a deal that was good for them and not for me. <laughs> and, um, and then she came to me and said, hey, daddy, do you think I could get that dog now? I said, oh, princess, not on your life. <laughs> There's no way you're bringing into my brand new little Victorian cottage a big dog to ruin the landscaping and my hardwood floors. So I'm sorry, baby, no. I had a few weeks to get ready for this message. And, and I kept trying to think, how can, I, how can I share with them? How can I help them grasp that God's love is extravagant, more than we can ever hope or dream. And I thought what I could do is I'd just reach back into some memory I had of, of when I maybe did something like that for Carla, and, and I didn't have one of those memories. I was confronted with the fact that I was 
way more interested that they become and they act like good Christian kids. Not because I'm so worried about their souls, but I'm worried about what it makes me look like as a pastor and as a speaker. And I, as you can imagine, knew what I had to do. So there came a moment as I am trying to express both my remorse to her that I did not demonstrate in the way that I think I should have, God's extravagant love, and that I wanted to do something different. And in that moment, a friend of hers stood, and Carla caught my eye and turned and saw the friend coming forward with a puppy. And she just wailed, like a wail of joy. Like, I'll never forget that moment of, of the little puppy and Carla in her white dress holding that puppy. I didn't think through everything completely. Um, <laughs> and, and, and we're just huddling there, and she's sort of sobbing with, it was amazing. It was amazing. And it was transformative. It was transformative. I, I can't forget that moment. Back to the car. The moment that my dad had missed. The moment that had caused me so much pain. And so I looked at my dad and I said, Dad, I gotta tell you, when you weren't at Carla's wedding, it killed me. And I feel like I just gave up. And in that moment, my dad began to sob. He literally wept for hours. And he shared with me things that he had never shared with anybody about his own secret life of addiction and shame. Things that had happened to him as a child that are unspeakable, that he had told no one. And how he, he couldn't bear to face me at these milestones of my life because he felt so unworthy. And he wanted to be there, but he couldn't. And then he said to me, and Carl, I don't think God could ever love me. And the rest of the day, we talked about God's extravagant love. And that it has absolutely nothing to do with us. And in fact, it, maybe it was even then that I began to flesh out this idea of what is faith. And maybe, maybe, maybe faith begins when I stop trying to get God to like me. That as I surrender and I confess, I don't have any tricks that can get your attention. I have to trust the gospel that you do love me. Dad and I had this amazing, amazing conversation. He, um, from the airport, he dropped me the next day at the Atlanta airport. He called a friend he had not been in contact with for 10 years. Shame had fractured almost every relationship he had. And he um, told the friend, I, I feel better than I felt. I don't know when. I feel lighter. 
Two weeks later, when the phone rang, and it was my stepmother on the other end of the line, I knew in that instant what had happened. I don't know how, I just knew. And my dad had died of a massive heart attack. So two weeks after that moment, I flew back to Alabama and did his funeral. And I, I shared about God's extravagant love. The love that is so high, so wide, so long, so deep, that may you experience it, though it is too great to understand fully. See, it doesn't come because I can share with you all the Greek words that will make sense and show the formula of how it's going to look and then you just connect a couple little dots and there you go. It, it comes somehow with the full weight of who God is. It comes as we believe the gospel. I wanna share one more story with you. This is from the life of Jesus. And I'm gonna read this, I don't want you to look it up, I want you to listen. It's not a long story. If you wouldn't mind, I, would, I, I think it might be helpful if you closed your eyes even in just a moment when I read it. But before I do, to give you the context, this is about a widow. You don't have to be some Bible scholar to just sort of imagine back a couple thousand years what it would be like to be a Jewish widow in an occupied land. Women were already at a huge disadvantage. Women, unmarried women had almost no economic recourse. They were beholding to their family, brothers, dads, whoever was alive. There, there was a few things they could do, but not much. And always at the very, very lowest. But this woman was lucky. She had been married. She, she got... She, she had something, she, she had an opportunity, but he died because she's described as a widow. She had buried her husband, but at least she had a son. At least she had a, what we seem to infer in the passage, a teenage boy. He could take care of her. She loved him. I'm sure they must have bonded over this experience. It was her only child. And just imagine as he gets sick, as she sees him begin to wither. Of course, her great love for him, but then the fear. And that's where we pick up this story. So if you wouldn't mind, close your eyes. And I want you to be the widow of Nain. Regardless of your gender or your place in life, you're a Jewish widow in an occupied land. Soon afterward, Jesus went with his disciples to the village of Nain. A large crowd followed him. A funeral procession was coming out as he approached the village gate. The young man who had died was a widow's only son, and a large crowd from the village was with her. When the Lord Jesus saw her, his heart overflowed with compassion. Don't cry. Then he walked over to the coffin and he touched it. And the bearer stopped. Young man, I tell you, get up. 
Then the dead boy sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mom. The next sentence begins, and a great fear swept the crowd. You see, here's my dilemma. I believe the story is true. I don't have any reason not to. I believe that Jesus can do those kinds of things. But my fear is Will he do that for me? Is that same Jesus driven by compassion for me? Lord, I know in my heart I, I resist your love, I'm afraid. I'm just afraid. I'm afraid it actually is true. And I need the power of your spirit to quit pushing against the door. I need the power of your spirit to surrender, to believe that it is true, to trust the gospel. So once again, I repent, I change my mind, I'm, I wanna think differently. So I pray for me and I pray for my friends here. that we would experience the love of Christ long before we fully understand it. I love that Jesus created for us the, the, the constant reminder, knowing, not in a shaming way, but how easy it is for us to forget I love that we have this experience of, of remembering the gospel, knowing that it is his body which is broken. Every time I experience the Lord's Supper, I, I say these words to myself, it's not up to me. I, I think in, in just, just a few hours after this moment when Jesus cries out, it's finished. That's what I try to remember, it's finished. All of my striving, all of my instincts that I have to get attention are wrapped up in his body which is broken for me. And I love that the wine, the dark cup being the wine, and the light cup will be the juice. And there will be a gluten-free option to my right on the left of the stage here as you face it.
Jesus said, this is my blood, which is poured out for you. This is the new deal, the new covenant. It means a deal, I think. And here's the deal. It's not up to you. I don't need your help. In fact, I want you to just surrender. You're trying to help. It's only going to make it kind of worse. You know what? Hold on. Let me. Yep, I did it right. Sorry, I wasn't. I wanted to make sure. I'm... So this is the juice. That's the wine. And it says on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread and he gave thanks. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. The pressure's off me. And he then later gave the cup. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. The gospel is true, not just for the world, but for me. And there is nothing more extravagant than a feast of a Savior who loves us. So we invite you to come and taste that the Lord is good. I'm going to give us a moment to be silent. I'll let the people that are going to distribute come up. And I'll just say a little blessing at the end of that. Thank you, Father. Amen. Paul ends that uh, prayer that I shared with you like this. Now glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we ask or think. Glory to him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen.